Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Our text will span the very last verses of chapter 2 and the first verses of chapter 3. As often happens with afternoon sermon series, um, it's been a while since we've been here. But we are back in Paul's first epistle, first letter to the church at Thessalonica, which he had, he and, and uh, his companions, Silas and Timothy, had been involved in uh, establishing that church in the beginning with new converts, both from the synagogue and from the, the pagan society in the city. Um, but Paul uh, was had to hurry out of town much before he would have preferred because of persecution, because of uh, false accusations before the authorities, uh, stirred up originally by the synagogue, but involved, uh, as they were called, uh, worthless people from the, uh, the marketplace, rabble-rousers. Um, but opposition had been stirred up against this new church and against Paul and his apostolic ministry. Um Although there was a kernel of truth in what was said, obviously it was presented in a, in a very false way, as a false accusation. These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also, and, and they're proclaiming a, a different king than Caesar, one named Jesus. <laughs> so Thessalonica had turned into a place where Paul could not stay. He had to leave prematurely. And now he is... Uh, reflecting on the time since then, when, as we'll see, he has been in spiritual distress, thinking about this young church, left basically on their own for months. Um, he had gone from Thessalonica to Berea, and actually the Jews in Thessalonica from the synagogue had followed him there to stir up trouble for him in, in Berea, too. And then he had to go much farther south to Athens, uh, from where he eventually went to Corinth. But there was, uh, as will be unfolded here, there was frustration in, in trying to, to again connect with the church in Thessalonica. And Paul wanted to go himself. As we'll see, he just it just couldn't happen. Uh, Satan opposed that. Eventually, Timothy got back up there in Paul's place. And then Timothy returned with a good report. The church still existed, and furthermore, their faith and their love were stable. <laughs> um, of course, there were problems. There's always things to be strengthened and made better in any church, but they were stable in the faith. They had not uh, listened to the slanders about Paul and his apostleship and ministry. So as we'll see... Uh, the title for this sermon will be appropriate. Good news from afar. Good news from afar. But you also see there's a lot of... Uh, Paul is, is rather disjointed, even for him, in the way he works through, uh, in the way he's writing this section of the letter. It's because of his emotion and how he's speaking very emotionally and tenderly uh, about his affection for these people and his concern for them. Robert Cara, in his commentary, says that 
that 1 Thessalonians 2.17-3.13 through 3.13 presents in chronological order Timothy's mission to Thessalonica. This mission occurred following the initial visit to Thessalonica by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. In brief, Timothy leaves Paul in Athens to go to Thessalonica to see how the church is faring. Timothy then returns to Paul, who is now in Corinth, with mostly good news about the church. After hearing the news, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Um, So that probably brings us up to speed. Let's just read the whole text first, and then we'll dive in. So, chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll read down through uh, through verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, or we are appointed for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted. It's that uh, word related to the word for the, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the, the paraclete. <laughs> uh, we've been encouraged and comforted in having uh, this comfort come alongside of us to help us. <laughs> we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I'm doing something in my outline a little different than usual. I'm putting the big idea one way at the beginning. Then when we get to application, I'm going to restate the big idea more for application. But the big idea, just as we look at the text unfolded, is that because of Timothy's report about the Thessalonians, Paul's distress turned to joy. Because of Timothy's report about the Thessalonians, Paul's distress turned to joy. That's the main thing he's getting across. In this text. So let's look at this text unfolded. First of all, verses 17 through 20. Paul's frustrated endeavor to return to the Thessalonians. His frustrated endeavor to return to the Thessalonians. 
he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, and it's interesting, this is right after he speaks of opposition, particularly from the Jewish people upon whom the wrath of God is coming to the uttermost. Um, And he remembers how the Jews in Thessalonica had opposed, uh, displeased God and opposed all mankind, opposing the, the conversion of the Gentiles that they might be saved. And he says, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. So he's reflecting on that time he had to suddenly leave town because of opposition. That word for torn away, we were torn away from you, brothers, that's a traumatic word. It normally means to be orphaned. It's like losing your parents. Uh, That's the word. We were ripped away from you like children from their parents. That's how he felt about it. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. Uh, and Jeffrey Wyman, in his commentary, he quotes John Chrysostom, from, who was, uh, he would have spoken the Greek language back, um, well, he was a few centuries after Christ, but he was still in the early church period. John Chrysostom observed long ago about this text. He did not say separated from you, nor torn from you, nor left behind, but orphaned from you. He sought for a word that might sufficiently show the pain of his soul. That's someone who knew the language. It was his native language. And that's how he reads this. But, Paul says, it was in person, not in heart. And this is just the beginning of highly emotional and affectionate wording throughout our text this afternoon. The emotion is high. It ought to be. But let me pause and just ask. And I have no one specific in mind, by the way. I'm just thinking of us in our culture, our society, and in our churches. Would you be embarrassed if a church leader or fellow Christian, or maybe a mentor in the faith, spoke that way to you? I feel torn away from you in person, though in my heart I'm right there with you. Is that a little too close to personal? Oh man, chill out. Well, it shouldn't be. If it is too emotional and personal, you need to conform your sensibilities to the, the warm, demonstrative affections of the early church. The church was a family that, for goodness sakes, they shared love feasts and holy kisses of love. Now, certainly there was still propriety and Privacy, Paul later tells these same Thessalonians not to be busybodies, to mind their own affairs, mind your own business. <laughs> uh, so there are boundaries in life, of course. That's not, I'm not denying that. But those lines of propriety and privacy don't fit neatly into anyone's natural background or inclinations apart from Christ. The church is something unique. And... It ought to call forth a special affection that we haven't known for people, especially people outside our family, apart from Christ. It should be unique that way. 
We endeavored the more eagerly, he continues, and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. Uh, Depending on your translation, that might sound like he tried just two times, but it's a figure of speech. ESV is good here. Again and again, he, he tried to find a way to get back to Thessalonica. But, he says, Satan hindered us. And of course, the Apostle Paul, of all people, is not denying the providence of God in all things and all the details of all things. He's not denying this is God's providence. But still, he says, this specifically was Satan's work. Blocking our path, hindering us. This was spiritual warfare, even in Paul's frustrated itinerary. But he says then something which should be really surprising. Uh, should um, yeah, it, it should grab our attention if we pay attention. Verses nineteen and twenty. He says, you know, "Why do I want to see you so bad?" Verse nineteen. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And actually, that the ESV is pretty smoothed out there from the Greek. The Greek is all over the place. He's trying to get the words out, and he can't quite fast enough. Um, it's you, before he even finishes his thought. And then he goes, comes back to his thought. You are our glory and joy. And you will be that on the day when our Lord comes in power and great glory. We can't stand to be... a cut off from you. The word here for the Lord Jesus coming is that word parousia. It's often used by Jesus and the New Testament writers. Um, you know, not only Paul, but Peter, James, uh, the Lord's brother, the Apostle John. It's used by the New Testament writers and Jesus and all of that discourse in Matthew. Uh, it's used as a technical term for Jesus' return. His arrival and power and glory at the end of this age, ushering in the eternal age to come. The day of resurrection, the day of judgment, the end of the world. All those are good descriptions of that coming. When Christ comes and sits on the throne of judgment. When no one can ignore his his visible and public enthronement. Uh, that this word, though, also, parousia, for Jesus' coming, is used outside the New Testament uh, and was often used in Paul's day, and, and the Thessalonians would have had this in their heads a lot. That word was used about the coming visit or arrival of a king to a city. Often there'd be a, a delegation that came out from the city to meet the king as he, as he came in his parousia, as he showed up. And those visitations were, as, as Beale says, they were revered and sometimes even feared. <laughs> this is an important word. I'm parking on this partly because this word shows up again and again as Paul writes to the Thessalonians about the Lord's coming later. But, especially in view of Jesus' coming on the last day, 
Paul says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It's you. Now, why does he call them his hope? You are our hope. His hope should only be in God. Well, as part of his hope in Christ and the gospel, his hope is also that that these people will be part of that numberless throng brought in by the gospel. Jeffrey Wyma says, just as Paul will later describe the difficult Corinthian church as the seal of my apostleship, 1 Corinthians 9.2, and his letter of commendation, 2 Corinthians 3.2. Kind of like that. Here the apostle somewhat similarly states his confident hope or certainty that the Thessalonian congregation will be the proof he will present before the returning Jesus. Proof that he has faithfully fulfilled his apostolic commission. That's part of the picture here, too. Part of the glory of that day will be all that God's grace has accomplished through us in the salvation of others. That is part of the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only to see him, but to be there with him and all his people in whose in whose life um, we've had a part, whom we've been part of bringing in. Certainly the case for Paul, the church planter, the apostle. And he says, you're our crown of boasting, our Stephanos. Stephen means crown. But uh, what kind of crown? Well, Stephanos was a wreath that would be worn on the head. It might literally be made out of plants, of foliage, woven together. Or it might be made of precious metals, like gold or silver, that were, um, they were crafted to, to look like foliage, like, like uh, an olive wreath or something. But it was worn as a symbol of honor or victory or a badge of high, um, of high honor. Um, Sorry, I'm losing my place here. Uh, it was especially... Oh, yeah, it, was, it could be a badge of high office. That's what I meant to say. It was a symbol of honor, victory, or a badge of high office. And particularly in the Greek and Roman world, uh, it would be... You would get this Stephanos, this wreath, this crown, when you achieved victory in athletics, in the games, something of that nature. Um... Some of you may have seen the old, better version, the, the 1959 movie Ben-Hur, and he wins the chariot race, and he comes up to the official, and he receives this, this wreath on his head. That's what this is. The contest is over. Those of you who know me said, oh, he got that in. I see what he did there. Um, one of his nerdy hobbies. But... Victory has been achieved. The contest is over. The struggle is done. Victory. And I'm wearing it as a crown. This is the trophy. And Paul often talks this way, like 1 Corinthians 9, 24-25, Philippians 4, 1. Um, the same way as there, Paul is referring to the victory crown that will be awarded to him at the second coming for his faithfulness to his calling, as Robert Carr 
puts it. The Thessalonians are part of Paul's victory crown because they are the fruits of his faithfulness to his calling. By the way, as um, Pastor Sam Waldron pointed out in a sermon I heard not too long ago, it also makes a lot of sense, at least partially, um, of statements Paul makes elsewhere. When he speaks of um, men who build the church out of either good or bad materials, and on the last day their work will be tested of what sort it is, right? And in the context, they're building the temple of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will test it to see what it's made of, what they've built. Be tested at, uh, as by fire, refining fire. What will stand the test of the last day? What's genuine, what's not? And he talks about some will be, uh, some will suffer great loss, speaking especially of church leaders who built the church the wrong way. Some will suffer great loss, though they themselves will be saved, yet as through fire, through the test of the last day. Well, one thing that can be lost on the last day is people think they've built up the church and it's all false converts. (laughs) Paul wants, as he says here in Thessalonians, he he does not want to find out that his labor has somehow been in vain, been empty. But these people haven't, haven't stayed true to Christ. They haven't stuck it out. He wants to be able to present them on the last day. These people are the real deal. By your grace, Lord. So, again, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Again, plenty for us to come back to in the application. But we have to keep moving. Verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 talk about Timothy's mission to Thessalonica on Paul's behalf. Timothy's mission to Thessalonica on Paul's behalf. Verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And there's debate whether this means Paul and Silas were left there by themselves or just Paul. There's disagreement on how the timeline happened. But verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, or uh, some would translate that something like our co-worker for God or, or of God. Our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. So Timothy was not just a, a low-level messenger boy. He was a co-worker. He was on the same page. Um, though, he was, though he was young and less experienced than Paul and Silas, um, Paul wanted the Thessalonians to respect Timothy as his representative. Uh, We sent him, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved or shaken up, disturbed by these afflictions. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Um, What was Paul's big fear? He feared that the people in Thessalonica would um, would be disillusioned with Christ, with the gospel, with the message they'd heard. Is this really what the Christian life's all about? All this hardship, my neighbors and family hating me, hating my guts. Um, the 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 Jewish people who claim to love the Old Testament just like we do, uh, they're opposing us. They're getting us in trouble with the authorities. 
and the, our father in the faith can't even get back to us. All these afflictions, it's the word for tribulation, but just a common word in the New Testament for high-pressure situations on God's people. He didn't want them to be moved, shaken by these afflictions. That's the message he sent Timothy with. He wasn't just sending Timothy to silently observe and bring back a report. He was sending Timothy as a representative to, to remind them of things. And to, and to speak with them to be sure they were stable in their faith. And uh, he restates it in a different way. Verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, Satan, the tempter, as he's called even elsewhere in Scripture, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Gary Shogren, in his commentary, he says, a round trip from Athens to Macedonia would have taken three to four weeks, not to mention the time that Timothy spent with the church. This event was a momentous step in Timothy's experience. He was probably in his early 20s and had only a few months earlier joined the team as the junior member, Acts 16, 1 through 5. Yet here he is carrying out a solo mission to dangerous Thessalonica. One that would end in triumph. He would repeat that success on other occasions, Acts 19.22. But again, what was Timothy's mission? Make sure Satan could, could not successfully tempt these people to fall away or even to wobble in their faith, their newfound faith. Now we get to verses 6 through 10 where we see Paul's great relief. But uh, verses 6 through 10, it's Timothy's encouraging report about the Thessalonians. Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith, that's the word for preaching the evangel, the good news, the euangelizo word. He's brought us the good news of your faith and love. So he's not literally preaching the gospel, the gospel, but... It's such good news, Paul uses this, this um, impressive word for it. He's brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly. <clears throat> or, we'll talk about that, uh, you always uh, keep a good memory of us, you could say. And long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, all our distress and tribulation... <laughs> We have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So again, I mentioned you always remember us kindly. Uh, that could be you maintain a recollection, a good recollection of us. And what's my point in, in mentioning that? Well, um, it's not probably not just that they had fond memories of Paul, okay? Um, it's more like a disciple would keep the memory alive of his mentor. And as Paul says later in these epistles, you, you remember the tradition, the teaching, 
that I've passed down to you. Um, you remember me in such a way that you can uh, that that you're not wondering from the example and teaching I gave you, right? So in staying true to what the Apostle Paul has given them, they're staying true to Christ. Uh, they're not forgetting. Now, there will be times, even in these letters, where Paul says, don't you remember when I was there, we talked about this? <laughs> in Second Thessalonians, he does that. But on the whole, he says, you're not forgetting what happened when we were there and what we taught you. That's a good report from Timothy. And the good news of your faith and love, your trusting in, in God and his son, Jesus Christ, you love God, you love his people, you still love us, you still want to see us, you're not glad to be rid of us because we caused you trouble. <laughs> For now we live, verse 8, that's strong wording. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. This is life for us. Now, in ancient letters of the time, uh, we could say it was common to use hyperbole, meaning uh, everyone understands you're, you're not being quite literal. You're, you're using a little exaggeration, but it's making a point. Your great affection for people. And yet this is still strong wording. Again, John Chrysostom from the early centuries said, without this good report, uh, he's, he's paraphrasing it this way, without this good report, we do not even think it life to live. Or as, as Bruce has said, the news of your unwavering faith and love is the very breath of life to us. That's the idea. And verses 9 and 10, he stresses his great joy and thanksgiving to God for them, realizing this is all God's work in them. And stresses the fact that he's still praying for them most earnestly. He's searching for words he can pile on to stress, we're always praying for you, night and day. And we're still just as earnest that we ourselves can come see you face to face. Because that's better than a letter. And suddenly this reminds us of how the letter began. Paul talking about how he thanked God for them, his unceasing prayer for them, chapter 1. And so here it comes up again, and now we learn why the letter opened so happily and joyfully in that way, so emotionally, because Paul had been on pins and needles until he got the good report from Timothy. So he had said that the big idea of the text is that because of Timothy's report about the Thessalonians, Paul's distress turned to joy. So what's the big idea applied? Let me word it this way. The spiritual stability of other Christians, the spiritual stability of other Christians must be deeply personal for us. The spiritual stability of other Christians must be deeply personal for us. I think that's, that's the heart of what we need to take away from Paul's example here. So let's develop that application. 
I have four, four directions I go with this. And I'm preaching to myself all three here. First of all, personal pains and prayer for their spiritual safety. Personal pains and prayer for their spiritual safety. And note, Satan's still the same devil. Satan shows up prominently twice in this short text. Paul's very aware of why this is so hard, because the devil is fighting it. Satan still uses circumstances, just like he did in Paul's day. He still uses circumstances to resist our efforts in this area, our personal pains and prayer for the spiritual safety of our brothers and sisters. Paul was doing all he knew how to do to get back to them, and he just couldn't do it for a while because Satan hindered him. And this was not outside God's control, but God allowed this for many reasons. For one reason, so we would have the epistles of First and Second Thessalonians, which are so precious. So, start with the basics, you know. How about us? Do we contact people when they're missing from church? Do you form a caring relationship with them so it actually matters to them when you check on them? That's challenging for all of us. Do you go out of your way during the week to pray for people and with people about their spiritual well-being? Do you share resources that have been spiritually helpful to you? Let me share what God's been doing in my life, a book or a sermon or just a verse that he's used. That's real fellowship in Christ. Do you talk with fellow believers about the practical difference the sermons have been making in your thoughts and actions? Uh, Do you notice when someone you know from church seems spiritually lethargic or spiritually cold? And does it bother you? We have an adversary. That's what Satan means, the adversary. We have an adversary who will hinder us from looking out for one another if he can. Satan is out to block these efforts. And if and if we make it easy for him, all the better in his mind. (laughs) He'll he'll do his worst to, to block us even when we're trying our best, as Paul was. But are we making it easy for Satan to do that? What does it take to distract us from caring and praying about the spiritual safety of our fellow Christians? Are we in too much of a rush to get out the door after church? Are we too self-absorbed during the week? Maybe we're okay at church, but then totally pull back during the week. It's just nothing, you know, or next to nothing. What does it take to make you view other Christians as annoyances or obstacles rather than the vulnerable brothers and sisters they are? People who need you. No matter how difficult they are. Are you easily offended? Or do you just never let go of things that happened in the past? I'm saying all this not because I know where each of you are spiritually, 
though obviously as pastor I, I want to know as best I can, but I'm just, you know, trying to get your mind going. Help you remember, don't be easily sidetracked by Satan. Your fellow Christians need you and you need them. So personal pains and prayer for their spiritual safety, speaking of other Christians. Secondly, personal reminders to them, personal reminders to them to endure spiritual pressures. The Thessalonians had to be reminded that their persecutions, their pressures were a normal part of God's plan for Christians. To this we have been appointed, Paul says. This is the plan. Timothy went all the way back to Thessalonica, which was ten times as hard as even plane travel to another country around the world is for us today. (laughs) Ten times as hard as that. Timothy went all the way back to Thessalonica to remind them of that in person because it was so important. They were temporarily isolated from the people who had first taught them the faith, and spiritual isolation is dangerous. Satan is called the tempter here because he could have swayed them from their newfound faith while they were isolated. Isolation is a great tool in his toolbox. Spiritual isolation. And that can happen even if you have people all around you, but there's no functioning spiritual interaction, right? Spiritual isolation. We have to remind each other of the truth we've already heard. We have to remind each other over and over that we have difficulties to endure. Now, not, not reacting to people's tales of woe with, oh, buck up. You know this is what Christian life's all about. Be joyful in the Lord. Slap a smile on that face. I'm not talking about that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, Paul also said. But in that context, we have to remind each other over and over that we have difficulties to endure And we can endure them, and we must endure them. We have to encourage each other not to view our own high-pressure circumstances as a strange or uncommon temptation. Woe is me. No one else has ever experienced anything this bad. Remember we talked about self-pity in the morning? That's, That's how we think. Again, you know this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, to bear up under it. But again, Satan still uses spiritual isolation to tempt us, to tempt us to give up. So we should avoid spiritual isolation as much as possible. And even though no one is in a perfect church, and even though this will be hard, no matter what church you're in, you'll run into roadblocks seemingly when maybe you feel like you're trying with someone, but they're not reciprocating. Keep pressing forward. You're in spiritual warfare. And don't just let spiritual isolation just be the status quo. We have to fight it. Hebrews 3, verse 12. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, in the context of all of Scripture, we know true faith will be preserved to the end by God. But part of the means God uses to preserve us is our hard work, our perseverance. So both are true. And people can think for a while that they are in the faith. And then realize in the end, nope. I really don't think this is worth it. And they fall away. And God will use the means, though, of our mutual encouragement to prevent us from doing that. <laughs> Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but the opposite of that, encouraging one another, hands-on when you're here. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So personal reminders to other Christians to endure spiritual pressures. Third, personal pride and joy in their steadfast faith. Personal pride and joy, not just concerned when things are going wrong, but when people are doing well in the faith, personal pride and joy in their steadfast faith. Sometimes we take other Christians' spiritual successes for granted and we only pay attention when they do something wrong. But do you pay the most attention when they live out their faith with excellence? Do we pour on the encouragement and celebration when, when that happens? You know, I hope, you would never as a father only pay attention to your kids when they're doing something wrong. Oh, now you got my attention. We wouldn't do that in the family, by God's grace. Sometimes we're more prone to do it in the church, right? <clears throat> Is their victory your victory when it happens? And you know, we can only do that if we act as each other's servants rather than each other's competitors. That seems to be a major theme that Paul had to emphasize for the church at Philippi. Let's, let's turn there to Philippians chapter 2. I have to be quick due to time, but I want you to see this. Philippians 2, first of all, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, all these mutual actions in the church he's talking about. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he emphasizes this in a different way, several verses down, verse 19. And here Timothy comes up again. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Again, the theme, look not on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. And that's why Timothy is such an example, Philippians. I can send him because I know he actually cares about you, and not just himself. And then we go down to chapter 4, and Paul's not done with this theme. Apparently, that though the church at Philippi was a sweet church, there were there were um, sticking points. Verses one through four of chapter four. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. That sounds familiar. Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat, and he calls out two ladies by name. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, probably speaking to a pastor, an elder there, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. In other words, all the people involved in this church, they're all equally heirs of eternal life together. They should be able to work this out. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord's at hand. The Lord's returning. Let's not let small stuff get in the way as we each look at our own interests, he says. And that leads nicely into the last point of application. Personal anticipation of mutual joy when Jesus returns. Personal anticipation of mutual joy when Jesus returns. I'm going a little over time, but I think it's important. So thanks for bearing with me. When you eagerly imagine the day of resurrection that day when you rise with an immortal body to meet the Lord in the air. And I hope you imagine that often. When you imagine that, is it just about Jesus and you in your mind? Or do you also imagine looking your fellow saints, your fellow church members in the eye as you're joining hands And hearts in the Lord's presence. We all made it together. That should be in your imagination all the time. I'm very messed up. These people are very messed up. But we're all going to make it together. (laughs) By God's grace. With a lot of hard work. But it'll be worth it one day. All sin and imperfection will be gone, and yet it's the believers around you today that you'll be with forever. Sharing inexpressible glory and joy, and that should radically change 
how we view each other here and now. It should make us more like the Lord Jesus in our affections and attitudes. Jesus endured the cross as he had his eyes set on that joy set before him, that joyful union one day with his redeemed people. That motivated Jesus to despise the shame and the suffering. Another way it's put in Ephesians 5 is that Christ, just like we husbands must love our wives, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her on the cross, that is, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, the end goal, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Or as Jude puts it in his doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, we will be Christ's great joy. The great joy of God the Father as well on that day. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, etc. When we are glorified, we see Jesus face to face in that resurrection day, we will perfectly share Jesus' joy over his people. And even now, we, have, we need to have that kind of joy in those same people. The joy and glory of our eternal inheritance is spoken of as heavenly light. Matthew thirteen forty three. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Likewise, Daniel 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So I'm wrapping it up this way. Notice the particular emphasis in that last text on people, people like Paul and Silas and Timothy, who turn many to righteousness. What could possibly be more glorious than inheriting eternal life with Jesus? Is there anything more glorious than that? Well, there is another level, you might say. Using your calling and place in life to bring many other sinners with you into that inheritance. bringing as many with you as you can and helping them along the way in the workplace or at school or just in public are you ashamed to do that because others might disapprove or are you just distracted from that work because you have short-term goals you have short-term promotions or people you want to impress in the home do you honor the lord jesus with your lifestyle, your integrity, your consistency, how you confess sin to your family so your spouse and children can see and follow that example all the way to the Savior? Are you turning many to righteousness in your home? Do you teach God's law and his gospel diligently to your children, talking of these things when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, as God says? The people living at your house, 
are immortal souls. And they will rise either to everlasting life or everlasting judgment. Only God can give spiritual life, but he gives us the means of grace to use toward that end. Living or dead, everyone you know will rise to face the Lord Jesus at his coming. In 1897, a lady named E.E. Hewitt uh, penned a hymn, and this is is what she wrote. I am thinking today of that beautiful land I shall reach when the sun goeth down. When through wonderful grace by my Savior I stand, will there be any stars in my crown? The refrain says, will there be any stars in my crown? Any stars in my crown when at evening the sun goeth down. When I wake with the blessed in the mansions of rest, will there be any stars in my crown? And she explains a little more the next verses. In the strength of the Lord, let me labor and pray. Let me watch as a winner of souls. That bright stars may be mine in the glorious day when his praise like the sea billow rolls. Oh, what joy it will be when his face I behold. Living gems at his feet to lay down. It would sweeten my bliss in the city of gold should there be any stars in my crown. Amen to that. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, please change us, all of us. Dig as deep as you need to. And do major construction work on us. We know you are doing that. By your word, make us willing participants in the work. May the spiritual stability of those around us be intensely personal for each one of us. So that we can function well as the body of Christ. And we will have so many tales of triumph to recount from this life when one day we stand before the Lord together. Help us to keep the things of this life in that perspective. Thank you for this word from you today. Help us to respond appropriately. We ask this in the name of your Son, whom you love. Amen.